Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. China's retaliation to the Trump administration's tariff threat was bound to include agriculture. We'll discuss the uncertainty facing the soybean industry. There are frequent travelers that don't worry about borders, passports, or visas, but they do worry about storms, mirrored buildings, and cats. We'll talk about the spring migration season for birds and take listener questions about one of nature's great events. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. On the campaign trail, candidate Trump wooed the vote of farmers. Here he is at a campaign event in Des Moines in 2016. Do we have any farmers in the room? Do we have any? Stand up. I want to see what our farmers. That's a lot of farmers. Family farms are the backbone of this country. Remember that. But when the Trump administration put forward a $50 billion list of Chinese imports for potential tariff, the Chinese response was bound to target agriculture. Soybeans and pork are right on the front lines. And Illinois is country's leading producer of soybeans, and China is where most of the exports go. We're going to talk now with Doug Yance and Tamara Nelson. Doug Yance is a soybean farmer outside of Peoria, Illinois, and Tamara Nelson is senior director of commodities for the Illinois Farm Bureau. Thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you, Drum. You know, I think a lot of people in this listening area, they know that there's lots of soybeans, but they don't really know how many people are employed by the soybean industry in this area, how much uh, money is coming into this area. Can you give us a little uh, outline of this, uh, Tamara? Sure. Well, it, soybean production is very important in Illinois, as you've mentioned. Uh, the Soybean Association has estimated that raising and crushing soybeans and closely related industries to that provide about $28 billion in sales and employ 114,500 people in Illinois. So that's a very large industry and one we're very proud of. Um. What did you think when you heard, um, first of all, did you think when the Chinese were um, contemplating or the Trump administration was contemplating a war with China that um, that you would be the next thing hit, that the soybeans were going to be the thing that people came after? You know, I think I'm kind of an older China hand than most. I've been there several times. We're very active in developing trade relationships with China for Illinois working with the Soybean Association and others. And it doesn't surprise me. They've been very clever and shrewd traders over the years. When uh, when they could, they would buy our products at the lowest prices and they'd buy large quantities. And then obviously the price would go up the next day and everyone else had to, had to face that price. So they're very shrewd and they also are keen observers of our political process. So I think they have tried to pick the products 
that would um, elicit the largest response from farmers and others uh, back to the White House and back to our legislators. And they're trying to pick places that supported Donald Trump in the last election, I imagine. That's, I mean, why, why would you go after agriculture otherwise? You know, I think that's true, but I also noticed that they've picked large uh, legislative states like California and Illinois that didn't necessarily, as a state, the the vote didn't go for Trump. So I think they're very uh, being very shrewd politically to try to maximize the impact of whatever product they've picked to put on the tariff list. Um, Doug Yons, I want to ask you specifically about your soybean farm and how you think this might affect you. Um, where where are you at, uh, and how many how many acres do you have? Uh, yes, we uh, currently farm uh, thirty five hundred acres and right around Peoria, Illinois, and we raise half of our acreage in corn and half of our acreage in soybeans. Uh, currently, yes, all of our soybeans are transported to Havana, Illinois, to a river market that leads directly to New Orleans where they're loaded and shipped mostly to Southeast Asia. And yeah, absolutely, we're very concerned uh, with the soybean tariff. What does this do to prices? Do you do you think, um, well, I'm going to get less for soybeans now? Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you're, you deal in a commodity, which is perfectly competitive and you eradicate a market um, that we have no control over as farmers, as producers, it's going to hurt price. Who are your competitors? Typically as a farmer, I mean, you obviously compete with your neighbors, with neighboring farmers, but you also complete, compete globally with uh, South America, you know, which is at, actually South America produces more soybeans than the United States. Brazil does a whole lot. Argentina. Brazil and Argentina, and so they're, they're so they're drooling right now. Absolutely, their <laughs> price at the port yesterday skyrocketed. They're just coming. They're harvesting now, so their crops all coming on soon. And uh, ours is the exact opposite. Um, how, how, the Trump administration has been talking about this as not a trade war yet. Does it? Um, does it feel like not a trade war yet to you? Do you think, well, they're going they're, to they're pull something out of the bag here and talks uh, tomorrow? I do think we have been hearing that, um, that the kinds of concerns that we in the Soybean Association and pork producers have, um, soy and corn and beef, especially the folks that would be impacted if the most recent tariffs actually were implemented, we are still having daily conversations with leadership in Washington and with our legislators. And I think, in fact, today... The Farm Bureau is doing an action request where farmers will be asked to, to make some influence there. So we are seeing and hearing, particularly from Secretary uh, of USDA, Sonny Perdue, that there may be some adjustments in, in what the U.S. decides to target and how the talks proceed long term. Are you worried about other aspects of U.S. trade policy these days? Um, I personally am. Uh, I've worked for more than 30 years now uh, in international trade negotiations. Um, the kinds of of uh, salvos that are being thrown and the kinds of um, methods that are being suggested are, you know, akin, if you're a historian, to the kinds of things that were bandied about before World War One and World War Two, where countries said, well, we're going to protect ourselves and make ourselves better, not worry about anyone else. And I think the 
the more difficult part is the United States has been a leader in establishing all the ground rules for international trade, and we've we've had great success. Agriculture is a good example in how you take advantage of bigger markets outside of our own. There's no industry in America that can survive without the 95% of the people in the world that live outside of the United States. So I think we just worry more that we we don't want to lose our leadership position long term uh, on trade by being very um, by being too forceful in statements that might create bad feelings with our trading partners. Are you worried about NAFTA? Oh yes, that's a key key concern of ours, and we're all working really hard to help the administration through its renegotiation. It is a good thing to renegotiate and update it. There's been a lot of changes to technology in 20 years, so we're looking forward to that. But I know within the last 72 hours, I think some more comments were made about doing away with NAFTA, and that would be a devastating blow to the entire economy. How hooked into uh, NAFTA is the agriculture of Illinois? Well, Mexico and Canada are are, top, are two of our top three markets, and they're absolutely key for corn, soybeans, pork, beef, and other major Illinois products. They're also key industries or markets for other industries in Illinois. So I would say from our perspective, absolutely significant two of our three largest markets. Um, are you confident that uh, negotiations, uh, what, what do they seem like to you when, when you look at the NAFTA negotiations? Because um, they seem to be back and forth, up and down. They've gone through a lot of rounds already. They do. And, you know, there's, um, there, are very, there are very few areas that significant change, I would say, is required. You know, we have the fundamentals for a really good trade agreement, but there are some areas that need to be modernized. And I think those are very detail-oriented, and that doesn't lend itself to exciting reports. But um, I think the U.S. is making a good faith effort now to move forward, and I think that's what all the industries, uh, agriculture included, would like to happen because Mexico and Canada are so important to our economy. And how much uh, is is Canada buying of Illinois uh, agricultural products? Oh, wow. Lots? Um, yeah. In fact, um, Mexico, of course, is a, is a slightly different uh, market, um, but they are buying – I believe they are our largest market for corn outside of Japan. Japan is another huge market, corn and DDGs, distiller dried grains. Canada and Mexico are both big markets for ethanol, and they're also very large markets for soybean and and byproducts of soybeans, as well as pork and beef. And in some of our industries, it's very integrated. So we might sell cattle genetics to Mexico. They may raise um, calves. They may transport the calves to southern Texas, where we feed them out in feedlots on Illinois corn. And then the the cows or the the steers are harvested and the meat gets sold to Canada and Mexico or in the U.S. So very integrated markets, a lot of good partnerships on the trade front. And I know for just generally for Illinois, very important markets. I'm talking with Tamara Nelson, Senior Director of Commodities uh, with the Illinois Farm Bureau. And Doug Yance is a uh, soybean farmer outside of Peoria, Illinois. He does soybean and corn. Doug, I wonder, um, you know, I've been hearing some farmers talk about the uncertainty and how what a bummer uncertainty is to your business. Uh, and there's always some degree of uncertainty. But uh, 
Does it make you think, well, I should do more of some other product? What could I do differently? I've, I've heard some farmers talking and they seem to think, oh, I could grow something else. Well, yeah, there, there's always, you know, that uh, there's a lot of farmers out there that diversify either with, you know, hogs, cattle, corn, soybeans, um, trying to get into organic crops. But when it comes down to it, I mean, the organic market – um, things like that, they're not just as big. And, and to be truly efficient when you're dealing with commodities, because at the end of the day, the low-cost produce, produce, producer will stay in business. And so you try to become as efficient as you can dealing with specific commodities. So at the end of the day, you're still in business. And when you try to diversify too much, you – you kind of become a jack of all trades, but a king of none, and and that can lead to inefficiencies. So you'd think you'd stick it out in soybeans, even if the tariffs got slapped on. Yeah, absolutely. I think in Illinois, our land here is made for corn and soybeans. Now you get out into Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, um, some of those fringe states where they have marginal land where they're you know they just don't have the production i think you will see loss in acreage in those places and i think those farmers they may have a little bit more of a struggle than what we have in here in illinois because in illinois we are blessed with some of the best farmland in the world what do you think people don't understand about uh, being in the agriculture business being in the soybean and corn trade I don't think they realize just how big of a business it actually is. If it, it, maybe Tamara, you can, but I, I think that agriculture is the United States' largest industry, and people don't understand that. And there are so many jobs uh, throughout the country that are involved in agriculture. And one, when these prices dip like this, Illinois has another major corporation headquartered in Moline that they could feel. You know, we all know that as John Deere, but, the, you know, they could feel effects of this as well. Uh, and and Doug's absolutely right. It's a, it's a big industry, and it's related to other industries that are very important to Illinois and to the rest of the country, including the entire food and beverage industry, um, alcoholic beverages, uh, ethanol for cars. So um, we have as much at stake as, as our friends in manufacturing and other industries. Well, uh, good luck in the trade talks, and we'll talk to you again as, uh, as the trade talks move along. Tamara Nelson is a senior director of commodities with the Illinois Farm Bureau, and Doug Yance is a soybean farmer outside of Peoria. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank Thanks, you, Jerome. Jerome. Well, there are no more spectacular international travelers than birds. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk about spring bird migration season here and uh, in this hemisphere. And hope you can stay with us. We'll take some phone calls and have some fun talking about birds today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's been great to walk outside and hear birds uh, talking and cackling at you. It was a little disappointing to walk outside this morning and see that my bird bath was frozen solid. But uh, in spite of the cold temperatures, the birds are coming back. They know it's going to be warm. We all know it's going to be warm. And we thought we'd have some fun today and talk about spring bird migration season because it's really a miraculous thing in nature, and people are getting to know so much more about it. And we're going to talk now with Judy Pollack. She is bird conservation consultant with Living Habitats. It's great to see you, Judy. (laughs) Great to be here. Thanks. And Josh Engel is here. He is founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding. Great to meet you. Thanks. Great to be here. I wonder if you could give me a story about uh, a really interesting bird migration because some of them come thousands of miles. And um, what's a great birding story? Josh, do you got a great bird migration story? Well, bird migration is a is a absolutely amazing phenomenon with billions of birds migrating every year all over the globe in every direction you can imagine. Um, so here we see uh, a, a very strong north-south migration with birds coming back up from the south at this time of year. And um, it, it's hard to pick a story. <laughs> There's so, uh, you know, so many stories, and we know so much now because of tracking technologies and things of that nature. So, for example, here in the Midwest, we have um, piping plovers that are a wonderful conservation success story at the moment. With their num- their, it's a federally endangered population here in the Great Lakes. We have them breeding um, all over the Great Lakes, on every Great Lake now, I believe. And we know from tags that we can put on their legs exactly where the Great Lakes birds go in the winter and where they uh, come back in the summer and how sight faithful they are and how successful they are at breeding and all of these things. So, for example, flag uh, the plastic bands that you put on their legs that can be read by birders or photographers or researchers are called leg flags. And we know from some of the leg flagging studies that they some of our the Great Lakes breeding piping plovers even winter in the Caribbean as far away as Cuba and the Bahamas and we can and we can identify individual birds making these migrations now. That's amazing. Judy, do you have a favorite migration story? Yeah, I do. Um Along with the tagging that Josh is talking about, they're also starting to use these little tiny geolocators that work on VHF radio uh, frequency. And they can put these on things that are as small as dragonflies. And they um, recently have... <laughs> they t- you can tag a dragonfly. Right, yeah, to study their migration. So this has like really opened up the amount of knowledge that people have about these migrating birds. But... Um, one sort of superstar was this gray cheek thrush, which is a bird that you might see in your backyard on migration. It actually nests up in the taiga, you know, in the boreal forests way to the north. And it, it winters in um, Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, that area of South America. And this particular bird in three days <clears throat> flew from Colombia to southern Indiana. 2,000 miles. That's unbelievable. It is. That's 700 miles a day. Right. <laughs> it, yeah. Does it take good wind to do that? A, a nice southerly I, breeze or something? I imagine or? it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's got a, they've got to bulk up and have an enormous amount of energy for those flights, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's what a lot of the birds, when they stop over in Chicago, that's what they're doing is bulking up, you know. So they're really relying on our natural areas to provide them with food, which, which I think kind of points at how 
um, you know, like a lot of people think they live in the city. They really, if wildlife conservation is something that goes on in South America or someplace else. But, you know, like right here in Chicago, people can do so much good for bird conservation by providing the kinds of vegetation that will allow these birds to, you know, attract the insects that these birds want to eat. Now, I was reading this article about the new migration science. And by the way, we want to take some phone calls and, and, and get some people in here with their bird questions. The number is 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239 with your bird question. And I was reading this article about uh, new migration science. And it said that um, birds might be attracted to city lights and come towards uh the cities that are along their route a little more than we would we would think, well, you would want to go to a, a rural place where you had a surefire meal, but that's not necessarily true. Yeah, they're finding out by um, by radar, which is another like new technology, like weather radar, birds actually show up on it. And um, by analyzing that, they're finding that birds are really drawn to cities. Uh, yeah. So like the, the light, weather radar the that we see uh, on our internet is, mm-hmm. it kind of filters out birds. They figured out some way to filter out the birds out of that. But some people are filtering them in. Well, you can you can use certain weather radar, NEXRAD radar, to watch bird migration happening in real time. And it's it's a pretty cool thing to watch if you know how to do it. And you can see the direction that the birds are flying. You can see the, the volume of birds that are, that are moving. So it's a great way as a birder to know what might be a real good morning to go out birding because you can be watching the radar overnight because most of these small birds are actually migrating at night, which is why the lights confuse them and why city lights may attract them. Um, So you can use the radar to see uh, the birds migrating. Are there spots that are like uh, stone-cold terrific spots because they're such a sure thing for food? I I imagine these birds are looking for like rock-hard meals. We've got some red-breasted mergansers who are sitting out – uh, outside of Navy Pier, and they sit between the filtration plant and Navy Pier, and they are getting fish out of there all the time. I can barely ride my bike up and down the pier and not see one. They're excellent fishermen, and they're they're there to eat. There's no question. And the mergansers are often in the same places where the human fishermen are <laughs> for the exact same reasons, because that, that's where the fish are concentrated. Um, but yeah, the birds are passing through here looking for meals, and that's one reason why it's so important for us to have good habitat for the park district to maintain properties for birds as well as for people um, to provide these refueling refueling uh, stopover points. And the way migration works, um, small birds migrate in just like a broad front across the state. And so a bunch of them are going to be caught out over the lake uh, at daybreak. And those birds have to fly to the shore, which is why anywhere on the lake shore is a really great place to see birds in the early morning, you know, because they just have to land there. And then so like Montrose Point, for example, you know, is a wonderful place. And there, there are a series of um, bird sanctuaries up and down the lakefront um, that are fantastic places for birds. But then a lot of these birds, then they move inland. So like migration scientists talk about, you know, you have like a fire escape and they have a quickie mart and you have a full service hotel. And so a lot of them move inland in looking for full service hotels. So places, um, you know, like along the rivers and the forest preserves is where the birds kind of are wind up because there's richer food there. But the park, the Chicago Park District has done a fabulous job with um, providing habitat right at the lakefront in this whole series of um, 
um, of bird sanctuaries that and, they have. And one of the amazing things about migration is that you can step outside almost anywhere, anywhere you are. Um, it helps if there's a tree or a bush, but that, even that's not always necessary. And you can see birds that have been migrating. Um, there's such huge volume, that, and, and we're in such a good location for it right by Lake Michigan that you can really, during migration, you can see birds absolutely anywhere. So besides the mergansers, you could step outside at Navy Pier to a little, the little park at the east end of the pier and see little songbirds that have been migrating as well. Let's take a few phone calls. The number is 312-923-9239. And Horatio, you're on WBEZ. Hi, I had a question for Judy Pollack. Go ahead. Um, where are some good places to see habitat restorations that benefit birds in Chicagoland? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. So um, wh- I think, um, you know, again, people might not think of the Chicago area as being so important for bird conservation, but in the city, um, as, as I mentioned, um, you know, some of these bird sanctuaries along the lakefront are fabulous. And then if you get out into the forest preserves, there are some um, wonderful habitat restorations going on, especially for grassland birds. So like one example would be um, a Bartell grassland and uh, Kildare wetlands complex in southern uh, in the southern Cook County in, near Madison. Um, and um, the partners there, including um, like Open Lands and Audubon and Living Habitats, have been working hard to restore habitat for bobolinks. And that is actually the place in the state where you can see the second highest number of bobolinks. Um, and they've done been doing interesting research there and have discovered that if um, you leave the big grasses out of the mix when you restore prairies, the bobolinks like it a, a lot better. So they've been a, a fabulous prairie restoration there. Um, that's really working well for grassland birds. So, that, And there's a, just a lot of exciting stuff going on around the region with partnerships with bird conservation. Um, Horatio, I wanted to ask you a question here. Uh, we've got some bird sounds. I want to see if you can identify this extremely common bird. Let's uh, check out this bird sound. You got that one, Horatio? Yes. Uh, I'm not that good with bird calls, but maybe a robin? That is a robin. You are absolutely correct. (laughs) You deserve a round of applause for that. It is always a great day when you see a robin, and uh, the first robin of the year, and I've certainly seen flocks of them these days. Um, We've got another caller at 312-923-9239. Greg, you're on WBEZ. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Earlier, uh, you talked about the fact that these birds are bulking up on their way as they arrive here or wherever. And uh, that reminded me that I've heard things about the disparity in time now between between the emergence, because of the global warming, uh, the emergence of uh, their preferred insects and flowers and so forth, uh, that it isn't matching when they arrive, that it may have happened and be over with before they they get here. And I wonder, are they adjusting to that? That's a great question, Greg. Uh, that is a very good question. And there's, there's a term for that now. It's phenological mismatch, um, which is when the, the phenology of 
a resource does not match up with the phenology of whatever is utilizing that resource. So, for example, around the Chicago area, a lot of the migratory birds, warblers and sparrows and, and vireos um, that are coming from, you know, they might have spent the winter in the tropics. When they're passing through Chicago in the middle of May, they depend a lot on bugs that are uh, feeding in oak trees. And if the oak, if the the birds' cues for migrating are um, day, well, a main one is day length. So the day length is not changing, but the weather might be. So if it's getting warmer earlier, then the oak trees that the insects depend on. Um, maybe flowering earlier and the bugs are emerging earlier. So when the birds arrive, they've already missed the main hatch of bugs. And so that can cause real problems. There's some evidence that birds are adjusting uh, a little bit, but it seems like birds cannot simply cannot adjust fast enough to keep up with the rate of climate change that we're seeing now. So um, there's a lot of questions with how this is going to affect birds into the future, and we don't really know yet. We're talking with Josh Engel, founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding, and Judy Pollack. She is a bird conservation consultant. And Greg, I I do want to ask you uh, about a bird sound too. Do you? Uh-oh. It's it's going to be a pretty common <laughs> bird. bird. We'll we'll give you hints. We're going to you asked an ask, excellent question. We'll give you hints. Um, here's the bird sound. All right, there it is. That's a little harder than a robin. Yeah, I was I was hoping for for one where and the bird has been named by its call. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not a blackbird, but it looks pretty black. It's almost entirely oh. black. It's got a black, kind of a bluish head. Yeah, uh, I don't know, grackles and uh, there you go. <laughs> Good job, Greg. And and you know, I, I we played a couple years ago a documentary series from um, Australia. It was from the Australia Public Broadcasting System, and they followed a bird from Australia all the way to the Arctic, where it made one of the longest migrations of all. And it was timing, just like Greg was talking about. It was timing for a specific plant and a specific bug that flew into that plant when it bloomed in the Arctic. And that was their deal. And they got up there, and it was off. And they were seeing the birds in trouble. They were seeing it was very. It was really interesting to go there and uh, kind of have that point driven home by this documentary. It's something that uh, endangers birds. They they will um, they will die if they don't get the stuff when they need it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, we'll continue taking phone calls here. Uh, Cynthia, you're on WBEZ. Yes, hi. I um, am wondering, you know, what you could use to get a building to install bird-safe film to prevent bird strikes. Oh, there are there are people who can help. Uh, yeah, that that's a, a great question. Well, first of all. Um, there is an organization, uh, American Bird Conservancy, and they're kind of kind of the national experts on this whole topic. And so 
they have a whole lot of products. It used to be that the only answer to this was that you had to go out with a bar of soap and soap up your window or do something, you know, equally ugly. But recently, there have been all kinds of really great products on the market. Um, these, you know, really attractive looking films that you can put over your windows. And um, I think... Uh, one uh, one of the things that we've seen, like one really great news story for birds recently is that uh, Northwestern University, which is right on the lakefront and has been building these buildings with uh, refle- highly reflective glass um, and that have caused a lot of bird mortality, um, they recently committed to treat all of the windows on their campus that are causing difficulty for birds, which is fantastic news. And the thing that made the difference there was that a group of activists from Evanston went out and collected all the dead birds and took a picture of them, you know, and sent it to Northwestern and said, what are you going to do about this? And they really um, perked up and took took notice. So um, I give a lot of credit to that group, uh, Bird Safe Evanston, for really making a big difference for birds. And the Northwestern has been slowly treating its windows. So like, you know, you can take a look at that website, use Northwestern um, as a great example. Um, and good luck, so, uh, you know, get in, and get in touch with local bird clubs to help you if you need help. So you're trying to con the people at the who own the building into doing this? This is your their quandary? Now, did bird collision monitors, do they help with that? They yeah. help They help people uh, con people into this. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to contact the Chicago bird collision monitors, that's that's what they do. You can look them up uh, online. Um, now, we've got a we got a bird call for you. Um, let's see. Uh, here's here's a bird call. Do you have that one straight up? That one you might be able to get straight up. <laughs> nope. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> it's, too, it's, too, it's too hard. The, my bird experts are saying, hey, that was not sounding like the, the call <laughs> that I think it is. Um, oh, we've lost our caller. <laughs> what was that, guys? We, my, was a my, very unusual sounding house finch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with more. We'll continue taking phone calls at 312-923-9239. Judy Pollack is here, bird conservation consultant, and Josh Engel, the founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're having some fun today and talking about spring bird migration season, the true international travelers that we're seeing float by our windows and outdoors. Judy Pollack is here, bird conservation consultant, and Josh Engel is here. He's founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding. We're taking your phone calls at 312-923-9239. And Pam, you're here on WBEZ. Oh, hi. Um 
I have a question, uh, and I would like to know, as, as someone who lives in Hyde Park, I'd like to know what I can grow in my back garden that will uh, provide food for these migrating birds. All right. Oh, wonderful question. And, you know, you can really make a difference for birds uh, in your garden for, for migrating birds. So the first thing, depending on the size of your garden, is, um, you know, any kind of woody material, specifically trees, you'll have, you'll attract a much greater uh, range of birds to your garden. So is, do you have space for that kind of thing? Uh, well, I have I have gone through the having chickens in my backyard phase and followed by having tomatoes in my backyard. <laughs> and I'm thinking I need to go back to grow to ha- having more trees in my backyard. I just think trees are the answer to to so many of our problems. So I'm thinking of abandoning my tomatoes for for trees. Well, I, I, like I'm completely in favor of that. I I applaud that decision. So then, what you want to be thinking about. Um, is you you want to think about structure. So you want things at different levels, canopy level trees, understory trees, and then shrubs, and then um, a, a, a ground layer. Um, that'll attract the most birds. And in terms of picking out species, particular species, you want to have a diversity because, you know, as Josh was talking about before, these things will flower across the season. And as the different birds come through, they'll be finding the food that they need um, across the season. And then if you think about things that have flowers and that are leafing out in late April and May when most of our birds are coming through and then in the fall, maybe things that have berries in um, in uh, in late August, September, October. Again, when the when the birds are coming through, so things and and you know finally you want to think about density, nice dense things. So you know things like viburnums, Iowa crab is a great one in the spring. It's flowering at just the right time, and um, and then also for hummingbirds, you know you want to think about those red. Red tubular flowers, things like the native oh, columbine is nice. Um, the um, blazing star is another nice native that'll get hummingbirds. Um, yeah. yeah. I have a pond as well, so I do have the birds really appreciate the water. So that, that is something that I've appreciated watching. Ponds are critical for birds. That's great. Yeah. Pam, we've got a bird call here for you. Here's okay. a bird, and we'll see if you can identify it. It's a pretty common one. Okay. <laughs> no idea. Well, it um, it's mostly a blackbird, but it's oh, got. I know it's a red a red wing blackbird. Very good. <laughs> I saw a great big flock recently, right in front of me, fly up, and it's such a thrill. They they look so great when they kind of. Throw, throw themselves up at in front of you. They, yeah. they especially like to dive bomb runners along the lake. <laughs> well, I guess that's uh, a valuable nature encounter for everyone. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Pam. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Uh, we've got another call. Lori, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Is this me? Yep. Oh, hi there. Okay, so this is my question. Now that I am retired and I have this lovely balcony on a tree-lined street, um, and I've always noticed that there was a lot of birds, I've been putting out some um, 
bird seed on, you know, just on the balcony ridge there. It's all concrete and it's nice, concrete and brick. And um, at first it was wonderful. I was seeing cardinals and finches and I even have a redheaded woodpecker that comes and visits the suet. But just recently now, um, some, um, I don't know, teenage uh, uh, pigeons have been um, coming to the balcony and unlike the birds, they defecate in the seeds which is a um, deterrent to the rest of the birds, I guess. I hate when that happens. Oh, yeah. So is there a way that I can eliminate the pigeons but keep my birdies? (laughs) Well, you'll have to find some seed that pigeons don't like, maybe uh, sunflower seeds in the shell, like black oil sunflower seeds. Right, that's Um, what I have out there. um, Is there any other, you know, pigeons really like eating millet and cracked corn, and, oh, um, and it is a combination. Yeah, so you know you'll have to find uh, some seeds that they don't like. So sunflower seeds are very, very attractive to birds like cardinals, grosbeaks, woodpeckers, nuthatches, chickadees—all these wonderful native birds that we have in in our urban setting here. Um, so if you eliminate the uh, the filler seed, the millet and the the cracked corn and the sorghum, um, you might actually be able to to just attract the birds that you want. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. Thank you. I know just where to go to get that. Um, by the way, I have a beautiful picture of a male cardinal feeding his female mate. Um, and I wanted to know if you wanted me to send it to uh, you uh, for your website. <laughs> well, that's so great. Uh, sure. Send it to worldview at wbez.org. All right, that's exactly what I'll do. Oh, hang on, I'm going to play a I'm going to play a song oh. for you. Yes, please. A bird song. Are you ready? Yes, I am. What do you think, Lori? I'm it, it sounded like a bigger bird than it is. Right. They had really good miking on that little bird. <laughs> um a finch of some kind perhaps? Close. Okay. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. Oh, well. I'm the first one in this whole call and thing to miss it. What is it? It's a song sparrow. Oh, okay. Well, what are song sparrows like to eat? Can you feed? Yeah, song sparrows are, uh, they'll come underneath the feeders. They won't sit on top of the feeders, but they love eating spilled millet and, and sunflower seeds that come under the feeders. And this is the time of year that they're migrating through. Some of them will stick around to breed, but there's even more right now uh, migrating through. I see them every time I go out birding now. So keep an eye out for a little, very uh, heavily streaked brown sparrow. And uh, maybe you'll actually get a song sparrow in your yard. And if you're very lucky, uh, you'll hear it sing. Thanks for calling, Lori. Thank um, you. Let's, uh, I want to talk for a second. Uh, go ahead, Josh. Well, I was going to say that Lori brings up a really good point um, about photography because everyone has cameras now on their phones or they have uh, a little camera that they can take very powerful pictures with. And bird photography is becoming a huge, huge aspect of birding and nature loving in nature, uh, you know, just enjoying nature in general. And there are ways to share photos, um, especially Facebook. is a, a There's an incredible birding community on Facebook. Birders have really... Um, taken to Facebook. I joined the Illinois Birding Network just to look at the pictures. Right. The Uh, Illinois uh, Birding uh, Network has a lot of really great pictures of Illinois birds. A lot of the local birding organizations
organizations have their own Facebook pages where they talk about local birds. So there are ways that you can share these photos that you're taking um, with the wider birding-loving public. Judy, I also wanted to talk about eBird, which is like a miracle. It is like a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. So if people don't know about it, it's eBird.org and it's run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And it's become more and more and more popular over the years. So birders use it to keep track of their life list because, you know, the birding community, there's a segment of it that's quite competitive, you know, likes to compare how many birds they've seen. And eBird allows you to keep track of all the birds you've seen in a county, in the country, in the city, etc., And um, in the process, it's collecting an enormous amount of bird data that is being, you know, well used by by scientists. And you can go on there and see for a particular location, you know, there are hot spots, what birds are being seen yesterday, today, see people's lists. You can see who's birding there. um, And there's... um, It takes the guesswork out of going out birding. Yeah, absolutely. You can pull up a list of birds that have been seen in a spot with photos of all of them that have been contributed by e-birders. So it's just, it's fabulous. And you can just load in Cook County and what's going on, you know, where's a good spot to bird. And it lists... Uh, dozens of spots yep. that, where people have seen all sorts of species. And I, I saw the number 62 thing on the, the thing was a really good place to bird by my house. It's mm-hmm. a, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of places listed there. Yeah, the eBird data is organized organized around locations that are called hotspots in eBird. So you can go and look at the hotspot map and see what places people go birding right around where you live. Um, so eBird is an, a, an incredible tool uh, on many levels. And, and they just unrolled something new, like just um, yesterday, I think, where they have two uh, different ways where you can get a sense of what birds are migrating. They have an actual map that shows you how the birds migrated the night before based on radar data. And then they have a forecast for the next three days. So I looked it up today, like what what's our forecast for the next three days? It's quite dismal in the Chicago area. So all the birders are like waiting for the birds, just like we're all waiting for spring. We're waiting for the birds to migrate. And they, they aren't, and they're not planning to. <laughs> they're they're, they're <laughs> wisely pausing because the yes. weather's so lousy, right? Exactly. But it exactly. should set up a big push at the, uh, towards later. Yeah. Right, which we can really look forward to. Yeah, generally what's going to happen is the next time there's a warm front that comes through and brings much warmer weather, which we're all looking forward to, um, usually that's accompanied with south winds that the birds can take advantage of to migrate as well. Um, get, makes their migration a little bit more efficient. So this next warm front, as much as we're looking forward to it, to be able to go outside and enjoy spring, um, it's also going to be a great time to see a lot of birds that have just arrived. Uh, Josh, you are the founder of Red Hill Birding. Uh, your organization and many others like that are out there for people who want to bird together and know more. Yes. Yeah, so, go places. Yeah. So mine is a company where I take people out birding. People can hire me to take them out birding. Um, but there's also lots of ways to get out for free just to go out with an expert who knows the area and knows a lot about birds. And um, I do a lot of free field trips for some of our local organizations. Um, and Judy's involved with many of the organizations, Chicago Audubon Society. And um, there's a lot of really great local organizations that have these ways to get involved um, even if you know nothing about birds and just are curious, uh, they offer these great opportunities to go out with somebody who knows a lot more. And there's a, a website, I believe, uh, IllinoisBirds.org is the Illinois Ornithological Society website that has a calendar that has all the birding events that are going on. So you can find one around you and um, get out there and see what's going on and learn a little bit about birds. But, you know, Josh 
sort of deflected the focus from himself, but I have many friends that have gone on his trips and love them. You know, he goes to Cuba, South Africa, all kinds of great places. So, yeah. Super fun. And I would love to hear more, and we should do this again sometime and uh, have some more fun with birds. Judy Pollack is a bird conservation consultant, uh, and Josh Engel is the founder and chief guide at Red Hill Birding. Enjoy spring migration season when it really kicks into force next week, maybe in the <laughs> Chicago area. And look up eBird and check out the uh, forecasts there. And it's been uh, terrific. We're going to go out on a nice bird song today. Uh, thanks very much to Julian Haida and Steve Bynum for producing the program. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for his deft engineering and warming in the uh, chicken squawking on that one woman's deal. That was awesome, Mike. <laughs> I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.